Hi, this is Pastor James Strickland, and you are listening to our sermon cast for Homeland Park Baptist Church. We continue in the book of Nehemiah this morning, and I'm so glad that you are are here. And I've said that a million times this morning. That's because I really mean it. And uh, I don't know if you're tracking along with me, but as we go through Nehemiah, we're roughly doing a chapter a week. And uh, it's amazing how, as we go through this book, it's so relevant to what we're going through today. But last week, Nehemiah's enemies were outsiders that criticized their work because the people of Jerusalem were rebuilding the walls and some people didn't like it. And so this week we see the enemies are not the people outside of the Jewish community, but they're actually those within the Jewish community, their own people. So Nehemiah kept the the vision of rebuilding the walls for God's people, but as they reassembled to live with one another, they had to learn how to love again, because they had been apart for so long. There had been some that had stayed back, some that had been exiled. And so, you know yourself, if, you, if you've gone a long time and you have family reunions, sometimes those of your friends and family change over the years. And so some things had changed here. And so the thing is, they had to learn to love one another again. Because rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, if the people were just going to tear themselves apart from the inside, it never was going to work. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, you and I have to ask ourselves, do we truly love his people? Do we love the people that we worship with that are in our church? Do we love the people that are worshiping in other churches? And do we love those that are not even in church. This is what we're going to see, some of the major themes this morning, because we will never be unified as a church and never be unified as the church of Jesus Christ if we don't learn to love one another. So let's just jump right into the passage this morning, Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And it says, Nehemiah defends the oppressed. It says, about this time, some of the men and their wives raised a cry of protest against their fellow Jews. So we have some of the Jews started causing dissension among their own people. And it says in verse 2, they were saying, we have such large families, we need more food to survive. Others said, we have mortgaged our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get food during the famine. And others said we had to borrow money on our fields and vineyards to pay our taxes. We belong to the same family as those who are wealthy, and our children are just like theirs, but we must sell our children into slavery just to get enough money to live. We have already sold some of our daughters, and we are helpless to do anything about it, for our fields and vineyards are already mortgaged to others. And so what we see here is we see those Jews that had remained in Judah during that time when they were under siege, they were in control of the Persian king, and they had these governors that we've read about earlier, Sanballat, Tobiah, and those, they were being taken advantage of. But those that remained back, they kind of started to amass a fortune for themselves. They lived under the system that they were, and so now they were the ones in charge. So there were some very prominent, rich, wealthy Jews that had stayed, and there are some that had went off and come back. But anyway, 
the Jews that were rebuilding the walls, the families, they were borrowing money from their own people. And they were being charged exorbitant rates for interest. They were having to sell their daughters to just to be, to be able to start to somewhat pay back the debt. And these debts were being lorded over them again by their own people. So what do we see in here? First of all, the work of the rebuilding of the wall had to stop because of this. Because infighting and strife caused their work to stop. Folks, I'll tell you what, in any organization, any job, any business, any church, any family, when people start to argue, the work stops. I'll never forget, uh, there was a book by Max Lucado called In the Eye of the Storm. This was years ago, and he talked about how when the disciples started fighting among them, themselves, among who was the greatest of them. And Max Lucado's point was, most of those guys were fishermen. And he said, when the fishermen don't fish, they fight. And I'll never forget that 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 line there, because it's true. If if we forget about our mission, if we forget about why we do what we do, the unity will stop. The work will stop. But we left chapter 4 on a high note. Everyone was working together to rebuild the wall and protect it at the same time. If you remember, one hand they had a trowel or a tool, and in the other hand they had a weapon. So they were working and they were guarding at the same time. So in this section of chapter 5, there is, notice this, you read all of chapter 5, there is no mention of any work going on. Working has stopped. Those of you that have worked in plants and production facilities, you know that these businesses, they don't like to stop the presses. They don't like to stop the machines because if the machines aren't running, they're not making money. So the work stopped because God's people were not unified. They were working against each other. And again, this is not Samblet, Tobiah, and all those others that had threatened them with their lives last week. These are people within themselves. And so I am sure that Sambalit and Tobiah and those other enemies of these people were loving this. The rebuilders were ready for the enemies outside of the city walls. But here's the thing. Those that were rebuilding were not ready for those that were inside the walls. Those that were within. So what do we see from this? Number one, Satan uses disunity to stall God's work. Satan uses disunity to stall God's work. We've seen it in churches. We've seen it in businesses. We see it in our world. We see it in our government. We see it everywhere. When there is no unity, the work stops. It's just posturing and people trying to get their own agendas across. Because if you spend your energy fighting, you are not building. God's work is not getting done. Their own people were their oppressors. The Jews who had become wealthy while they were exiled in Jerusalem, they came back with their riches and thirst for more money and power. Family members of the Jews who had arrived in Jerusalem under Zerubbabel's reign, they were already established in Jerusalem. So here's the problem. Their lust for money was the problem. Look at verses 2 through 5. In verse 2 it says, Some were the down and out who had no land or food. Some were landowners who sold everything to survive. Inflation had risen to an all-time high. And as supply goes down, demand goes up, so does the price. Do we know anything about that? People say, oh, the Bible is just a book written many years ago. It doesn't mean anything today. Folks, it's reading like a news feed right here. 
I would say a newspaper, but most of y'all wouldn't know what a newspaper is nowadays. Verse 4, we see some Jews were overtaxed. Imagine that. Some people groups, some parts of the nation, they were overtaxed. In their days, taxes did not go to support local services. It went to support their king and their government. That's why we work. What, what is it they say? Our first three or four months of the year is nothing but taxes? It's crazy. We are taxed more than... But that, this is not about taxes. But anyway, I'm just saying that the, the plight that we see today is not far off from what they were going through. Jews were taking advantage of Jews. Their own brothers and sisters by loaning them money and using their land and children as collateral. Can you imagine going to your brother or sister and say, look, if, if you charge me this exorbitant rate and if you hold me to this loan, I'm going to have to, to sell your niece. And they look at you and say, put them on eBay. Go ahead and do it. I mean, can you imagine the cold calculated where, where money has become such a root of evil for them? So they were being taken by their own. And here's the thing. They didn't value the lives of their own. In other words, if they looked at their brother or sister, they didn't value their lives because they thought, well, they can be sold or I don't care what they're going through. I want my money back. I want my profit. Folks, we're not far from that today. There is very little value put on life. We see that. Before life comes out of the womb, and we see that after life has been lived and people are in end of stage. There's, when we start devaluing life, whether it be at the front end or the back end, it makes its way through the whole timeline. People are not looked at the same way they used to be. And that's just the way life is. The Jews were taking advantage of their own. God's word, though, they, they knew they were wrong. Again, these are God's people. These are God's chosen. And they know that what they're doing is wrong. And they, don't, they still do it. For example, God's word says in Deuteronomy 29, excuse me, 23, verses 19 through 20, it, God tells them, do not charge interest like the worldly moneylenders. If you are charging, if, you, if someone who is part of God's chosen people, the Jewish nation, if they ask you for money, you loan it to them and do not charge interest like the worldly people do. So they were breaking their own law. And why is that? Why did God tell them that? Did God just not want them to have anything prosperous? No. Here's Here's the truth God knew. The more prosperous we are, the least likely we are to enjoy the simple blessings that God gives us. I mean, think about it. When you're living, all, all of your, your whole month is surrounded by your income versus all the payments that you have. House, car, second car, education, or, or whatever else, medical bills. And we cease to be, to be concerned about what God wants for us because we know every month, that bill is going to come in, and every month we pray that whatever income comes in is going to offset that. It's so easy to choke out what God wants for our lives when we are just working to make a living. And sometimes I think, and I'm talking to myself too, we have to be very careful that the things that we own do not own us. 
We've got to be very careful that the things that we own do not own us. Because here's the thing that we see in this passage. There will always be disunity when money is valued higher than people. There will always be disunity when money is valued higher than people. Believe it or not, I think some of the hardest times for churches is not when they don't have money, but it's when they get a lot of money. Because then everybody feels like they know how it should be spent. Everybody's fighting over this. Everybody's fighting over that, except of just being dependent upon God week by week. There will always be disunity when money is valued higher than people. I'm, I'm very blessed to be at this church uh, now in my 10th year, and, and you, many of you know, and I've heard the stories about, it seems like year after year, people were fighting over money and what they were going to do with it, and we just don't have that, and I'm so blessed by that. Uh, we, ha- we are able to keep these beautiful lights on, and we're able to, to stay relatively cool and warm in this nice, beautiful sanctuary. We don't have everything we want. We've got everything that we need. God is taking care of our needs, and we should be like that in our homes as well. The second thing we see in verses 6 through 13 is that rebuilding requires a constant focus on God. Rebuilding requires a constant focus on God. Some of you that have pets, I think this is, you're going to say, why in the world are you saying this? But it's the truth. Sometimes we have a dog, y'all know, Bruno, the best dog in the world. Uh, But sometimes it's funny. We ask him if he wants to go in the grass. You know what that means. And so he'll go out in the grass and all of a sudden he'll just stand there. And he'll see a squirrel or he'll see a rabbit or he'll see, and he'll just start sniffing. I'm like, do you remember why you went out there, right? And all of a sudden, oh, okay. And then they, you know, the dog goes and does his, his business. But, it's just easy. I was just, you know, I think about weird things when I preach. It's, it's amazing what I don't share. Uh, but it's just, it's like sometimes that's, that's what happens with us. If we are not careful, we will just get sidetracked when it comes to what God wants us to do for our life, what God wants us to do as a church. We see in verses 6, we see 6 and 7. He says, when I heard their complaints, this is Nehemiah. When I heard his complaints, I was very angry. After thinking it over, I spoke against these nobles and officials. I told them, you are hurting your own relatives by charging interest when they borrowed. Then I called a public meeting to deal with the problem. There is so much just in this verse 6 right here. In 6 and 7 too. It's like, when I heard the complaints, I was very angry. Now, preacher... Christians are not supposed to be angry. Why is Nehemiah angry? Let me ask you something. Have you ever read in Scripture where God was angry? Oh, yeah, many times. The difference in Nehemiah's anger and the anger that we get when someone cuts us off going down the road or they get their lunch before us because we got there before them. And when we get all that anger, and I'm being kind of funny, but the truth is, when we get angry, a lot of times it's because we are offended. It's about what we want. It's about our selfishness. But Nehemiah wasn't, 
wasn't angry because he had felt attacked. He was angry because they were not doing what God called them to do. It was very similar to the holy righteous anger that Jesus had when he cleared the temple. So yes, he was angry that he saw God's people taking advantage of God's people. That's what made him angry. And then I love what it says next. He didn't pray about it and and form a focus group. He didn't look to Twitter to see what was trending. He didn't post a passive-aggressive comment on Facebook. What did he do? He sat there and it said he called a meeting to deal with the problem. Sometimes the best thing we can do, although it's uncomfortable, it's beneficial to just deal with the problem. So Nehemiah's anger takes a stand against the injustice. Nehemiah is fighting for the glory of God and those of his own people that God called him to rescue by building these walls. He is seeing, I mean, can you imagine it? The, the, he is seeing his own people that he came to rescue tearing themselves apart. And that happens every day because churches are divided by political views. Political parties, hashtags, and cultures, and all these things. We have forgotten why we are together and why we need to love God and love others. There's other examples of this holy, holy anger. When Moses breaks the first set of Ten Commandments in Exodus 32, and again, Jesus clearing the temple in Mark chapter 3. But here's the aha moment. Check this out. The rebuilding of the walls did not create these problems It revealed them. If they had never tried to rebuild these walls, they never would have known that this extortion among their own people were going on. And so, folks, what I've got to say to you is that as we look at rebuilding what God is doing here, and you look at what rebuilding what God is doing in your life, I want you to understand it will reveal things that need to be dealt with. And we need to deal with them in a holy and a righteous way. All we know, trying times bring out the best and worst of people. What was God doing here? Why in the world are they even at that? Can you imagine Nehemiah saying, God, why in the world are we fighting? And God is saying, look, here's the thing. I'm trying to make a better people. I'm trying to get people to love me. I'm trying to get people to love one another. And if this is left unchecked, it will never happen. You know why God brings things to your forefront, don't you? You know why when you're praying and God tells you you need to change something. You know why when churches find out that there's something going on that they need to change. You know why they do that? Because God is refining them to be more on track for his purpose. And that is what is happening here. Verse 8 says, At the meeting I said to them, We were all doing what we can do to redeem our Jewish relatives who have had to sell themselves to pagan foreigners, but you are selling them back into slavery again. How often must we redeem them? And they had nothing to say in their defense. In other words, he's saying, look, I have tried so hard to free these people, and now they are enslaved again by their own people. How many more times do we need to rescue them, is what he's saying here. Again, the, the, the practices they were, they were doing were violating Jewish law. We see that even in Exodus 22.5. Nehemiah was bold because of his passion for completing God's work 
and his love for his people. I'll go ahead and tell you, I bet Nehemiah was not popular at this point. First of all, enemies outside of the Jewish community did not like him. As you remember last week, people wanted him and his people dead. And so now he has no friends on the outside, and now he's got people on the inside. They don't like him as well because he's messing with their way of life. He's messing with their power struggles. I've, I've had many friends over the years in churches, and uh, I, have, I have heard horror stories about what happens when a certain family is crossed. Whew. Can you imagine what was going through here? Not only a family being crossed, but a whole subset of people within their own community. Then he says in verse 9, Then I pressed further, what you are doing is not right. So he had the gall, he had the, the, the courage to tell them, Look, my own people, you're doing things that are wrong. Should you not walk in the fear of our God in order to avoid being mocked by enemy nations? I myself as well, my brothers, and my workers have been lending the people money and grain. But now let us stop this business of charging interest. You must restore their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and homes to them this very day. And repay the interest you charge them that you lent them. Money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. In other words, he's saying, this is going to stop, and you are going to make it right with everybody you have done wrong. Boy, I'm sure they were excited about that. What does the Bible say about a believer that has lost their love for God and his people? Because that's what had happened here. These Jews had lost the love of not only God, because they're doing, well, they're, they're doing exactly what God told them not to do, and then it's affecting their love for their brothers and sisters. Well, three things. What does the Bible say about a believer that has lost their love for God? And I wanted to show you the verses on here. First of all, if you have lost your love for God, it shows, and if you are treating people without love, you do not have a relationship with God. Why is that? 1 John 4.20 says, If someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? My friend, if you do not love people, you do not love God. That is exactly what the Gospel of 1 John is saying, or the letter of 1 John is saying. We cannot have... Hatred towards our heart. Now, go ahead. I'll go and tell you. There are people that it's going to be hard to deal with people. And there's going to be people that we don't like. But we never devalue them. We never take advantage of them. We never see them as less than somebody else. If we do, we need to question our devotion to God. Because how can you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, look down on someone else? Regardless of their lifestyle regardless of their political affiliation, regardless of what news channel they listen to, regardless of how they act on Facebook and and Twitter and social media. Sometimes I think we check our, our relationship with the Lord at the door and then go out and act like we want. Be very careful about that. Number two, 
we disregard or disobey God's word. That's what these Jews were doing. It says in James 4.17, remember, it is a sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. We, we try so hard to categorize, well, this sin is bigger than this sin. And this sin, oh my goodness, you know, if somebody does this, you know, here's the thing. Sin is sin. And for somebody, for a believer to know what they ought to do and not do it is just as bad as someone who is living in an unholy lifestyle or has killed somebody. A sin is a sin. And then three, when a believer sins, we all suffer. And I I think that's the thing. Here's the thing. When we sin and, and we don't see any immediate repercussions, we think, "Woo! I got away with it. And there are some sins that that they harm ourselves. But eventually, as we harm ourselves, it will harm others. I've never in all my years ever heard a family member, a child, or a wife, or a husband to say, you know what, I wish my, my husband or I wish my daddy would drink just a little more. He's so much happier when he's drinking. Boy, I I would love to see my mother just get strung out even again. I would love to see my parents spew all of that hate at home. I would love to see one more fight because that really edifies me. It doesn't happen, does it? And though we think it's all about us and our struggles, it is affecting others every day. And what affects you in your home, behind your walls, behind your closed doors, will affect the family of Homeland Park Baptist Church. And you say, well, I'll fix that. I just won't go here. Well, that's fine. It will affect somebody else. When one believer sins, we all suffer. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, 26. It's on the screen. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, all the parts are glad. I tell you, the older I get, you know, I joke with y'all about how, how does it feel to be older and all that kind of stuff. And I tell people, I can do what I did when I was in my 20s. It just takes me longer to recover. But isn't it amazing, like, if, if you get like a, if you know what that awful, awful disease of gout is. Woo, I'll tell you what. Your little toe can be hurting. And if you, the sock just touches it, it's like your day is over. That one little toe ruining your whole day. And that's the way it is when one part of the body, whether it be the head or the, the chest or the arms or the pinky finger or the pinky toe, the little piggy that went wee, wee, wee all the way home. When that thing hurts... It impacts the whole body. So the offending Jews, they weren't walking away in the fear of God and it made God look bad to the outsiders. What does it look? I mean, and I've probably told you this before. I was at a different church and they were fighting. There was fighting between a pastor and a staff member and it just got really bad. And so there one night there was a guy that uh, was, um, uh, he, jerked, he jerked somebody up by his, his coat. And they wanted to fight in the parking lot over all that stuff that was going on. I'll never forget, I kept the youth out of all of that stuff. And for some reason, I don't know why, but Donna was in there. And so kids came over saying, Preacher, you got to get over there. Donna's crying. I'm like, it's like, 
and y'all probably seen it here before. I mean, I haven't seen it since I've been here, but every church has this. You will, you will struggle to make attendance. You'll struggle to make Sunday school numbers. You'll struggle to make offering. But boy, if there's going to be a business meeting where there's going to be a fight, woo, you better have parking lot patrol because everybody's coming because they want to see the show. What does that say about a church? What does that say to unbelievers? What does it say to that sweet believer that can't believe that all these people that they have Sunday school with and that they hear preaching and that they see in the choir are now fighting with one another? Because again, so many churches are known for their fights rather than their faith. Well, if they don't like one another, they'll just split and start a new church. There's First Baptist Church, Second Baptist Church, First Second Corinth, First Home and Park, Second Home and Park. I don't know. What does it say when we can't get along and we can't love people? And so what we see here is Nehemiah told him, you're going to fix this. And this is a concept, a spiritual concept called restitution. Restitution. If you have treated somebody poorly, apologize and make it up to them. Folks, if, if you've done sloppy work for someone, you go make it up to them. You apologize to them and you make it right. This applies to our relationships as well. If you have ignored your spouse for five years, apologize for it and say, I will make up for that for the next five years. For your children or for your friends. If you follow up on the promise to make restitution for what you've done wrong, God will honor that. So verse 13, I shook out the folds of my robe and said, If you fail to keep your promise, may God shake you like this from your homes and from your property. So he just basically took his robe and went, Phew! Kind of like I guess we call a mic drop in today's, in today's world. He just kind of like said, If you don't do this, Phew! See this dust? That's what God's going to do to you. So they said, okay, we got it, Nehemiah. Because remember, they didn't like what Nehemiah was saying because it was hitting them, but they respected him enough to know that what he was saying was going to happen. Nehemiah's bold stand on God's word corrected the problem. Look at the second half of 13. After he said, if you don't do this, you will suffer, it says the whole assembly responded, Amen! And they praised the Lord And the people did as they promised. So what we see here is because Nehemiah took a stand against these Jews that were mistreating these other Jews, the wall would have never been built if this had not come to light. Was it painful? Yes. But it was necessary. And then we see in verses 14 through 19 that Nehemiah models loving through his leadership. This, if, and when I talk about leadership here, it's not just for someone like a pastor or a manager. It could be for a mother. It could be for a grandmother, father, grandfather, brother, sister. If you have influence over anybody, you are a leader. And it says in verse 14, For the entire 12 years that I was governor of Judah, for the 20th year, I guess that means that uh, Samblet and Tobiah lost their jobs because now, Nehemiah was the governor. For the entire 12 years, I was governor of Judah from the 20th year to the 22nd year of the reign of King Artaxerxes. Neither I nor my officials drew 
on our official food allowance. The former governors, Samblet and Tobiah the Horonite, those kind of guys, in contrast, they had laid heavy burdens on the people, demanding a daily ration of food and wine besides 40 pieces of silver. Even their assistant took advantage of the people because I feared God, I did not act this way. So what he's saying is the former administration was crooked. And they charged extra fees among the people. But I am not asking them for anything. And then verse 16. I devoted myself to working on the wall and refused to acquire any land. I love this. As a leader, he devoted himself to doing the work. He didn't get it started and go back in his office and get quarterly reports on how the progress was going. He was there. He was slinging shovels. He was slinging trowels. He was holding a sword. He was doing what it took to get the work done. The people saw that. It's just like that age-old concept of, I'm not going to ask anybody to do anything that I won't do myself. says, uh, verse 17, I asked for nothing even though I regularly fed 150 Jewish officials at my table. Besides all the visitors from other lands, the provisions I paid for each day included one ox, six choice sheep or goats, and a large number of poultry. And every 10 days we needed a large supply of all kinds of wine. Yet I refused to claim the governor's food allowance because the people already carried a heavy burden. Imagine that. Here he is. I, I can't imagine King Artaxerxes. These other governors that they had were bleeding them dry. But now Nehemiah says, no, I don't need any of your help, king. I got this. And he used his own resources to make sure the people had what they needed. And he says in verse 19, remember, oh, my God, all that I have done for these people and bless me for it. Nehemiah wasn't trying to please the people to gain votes. Nehemiah wasn't trying to set himself up to be the man. Nehemiah was trying to please God. And my friends, if you make pleasing God your number one priority, your family will see that. Your church will see that. Your job will see that. Your circle of friends will see that. This church will see that. Nehemiah loved his people too much to get special treatment. Nehemiah's behavior as a governor was guided by his principles of service rather than opportunism. That's very unusual still today. That somebody would actually serve because they want to serve and get nothing out of it. Imagine what this world could be if people were the same way. So in in summing this up, rebuilding requires love. Nehemiah loved his people enough to stand up for those who are being oppressed. And he loved them enough to stand against his own people who were oppressing them. So the question to me, or the question to you is, do you love others? As a believer in Jesus Christ, do you really love his people? Do you treat them as Jesus has treated you? And will you, if you don't, we will never be unified if we don't learn to love. All that we say and do must be motivated by love, controlled by truth and done for the glory of God. And as we rebuild, and as we do what the Lord has called us to do, understand it is out of a love for God and a love to reach His people. Let's pray. 
God, thank you so much for our time together this morning. And Lord, our invitation is simply this, Lord, that if there is someone here today that does not know you as their Savior and Lord, and and they don't know that kind of love, it's impossible to love others like you love them unless we experience it. So Lord, if there's someone here that does not know you as their Savior and Lord today, may they make today the day where they pray to ask you to come into their life, forgive them of their sins, and to walk in newness of life. May they just come forward and make that public. And Lord, if they do that, Lord, uh, it it will be a life-changing moment for them, Lord. Because if they can't make the stand here, they have no hope of making that stand out in this world. We would rejoice with them. We would love that. Maybe someone just wants to come to the altar and pray. Well, maybe there's somebody in here that's really struggling with loving others. And by others, I mean someone specifically. Lord, may they pray and release that and give that to you this morning. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.